Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for this timely discussion about recent developments in PFAS regulation. My name is David Lyons. I'm an energy and environmental lawyer at Rich May here in Boston and outgoing co-chair of the BBA's Committee on Solid and Hazardous Waste, which is part of the Energy and Environmental Law section. So this is the second of a two-part series uh, that the Environmental Law section is holding this year on PFAS. Um, and this follows a terrific discussion a few weeks ago on recent developments in PFAS litigation. I encourage everyone to check out that, um, that recording and the slides from that session. And in a moment, I will turn it over to uh, Peter Viter, who will highlight some big developments um, in the litigation that was discussed in that session just in the last few weeks uh, since, since that meeting. So today's panel uh, looks at the evolving set of regulations governing PFAS. Uh, and as you will hear, there is a lot going on. So much, in fact, that it would be impossible to cover it all in the 90 minutes we have here today. Um, so to set the table a little bit, as most of, uh, most of you probably know, PFAS refers to a class of chemicals called polyfluoroalkyl substances. Um, there are tens of thousands of these substances, um, they, and their defining characteristic is that they are exceptionally resistant to degradation because of the strong carbon-fluorine um, bonds that make that define this class of chemicals. Um, and then they also have many beneficial properties as a result. They repel water and grease. They hold up against high heat, um, and for for those reasons and others, they've been used in many um, commercial and industrial applications. You've surely encountered them uh, in waterproof jackets, in uh, nonstick cookware, in microwave popcorn bags, and the list goes on and on. Um, unfortunately, it's become clear and clear in the last decade or so uh, that they also have harmful and toxic effects, and they've been linked to a number of significant adverse health income outcomes like cancers, diminished reproductive capacity, increased cholesterol, and among others. Um, and because they are so uh, durable chemically, they also are very difficult to clean up and they bioaccumulate in humans and, and other animals. Um, so as we've learned about the pervasiveness, um, durability, and those adverse um, toxic effects of PFAS, federal, state, and local governments have been ratcheting up their policy responses, uh, particularly in the last few years. Um, PFAS is found now in every environmental media, soil, water, air, um, seemingly in pristine areas, um, isolated farmland, um, I think even the, the South Pole. Um, in, in response, um, Regulators are, are opening up their regulatory toolkits um, using in, invoking a number of different environmental statutes and regulatory schemes. Um, and again, we're not going to be able to talk about all of them today, um, but just to highlight a few uh, items that are notable measures that are underway. Um, so EPA, federal EPA, uh, listed two of the most common PFAS compounds, PFOA and PFOS, uh, as circular hazardous substances in by a draft rule in September 2022, 20, uh, so last year. Um, it's reviewing the many comments that are received on that proposal uh, as we speak. Um, 
And then uh, a couple of months ago in April, uh, issued an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking uh, for additional PFAS compounds, including the widely used Gen X. Um, so when that first rule goes final, when the uh, if the advanced rule um, makes its way to a, a final rule, uh, we could see significant uh, obligations imposed on um, uh, companies responsible for for circle sites um, and quite possibly we'll see litigation over the uh, over those rules before they take effect. Um, then a few months ago, um, aside from CERCLA, EPA has uh, issued a new rule under the Toxic Substances Control Act that would uh, limit the or prevent the use of uh, inactive PFAS compounds uh, without uh, prior EPA review. Um, so just, just two examples of how EPA is using uh, two different statutes uh, to regulate PFAS. Um, many more details of EPA's regulatory agenda, which is quite comprehensive when it comes to PFAS, is available on their uh, PFAS roadmap uh, website. You'll hear a little bit more about that from Ken, and I'll also drop a link to it in the chat here. Um, meanwhile, here in Massachusetts, there's plenty of activity as well. Um, Massachusetts was among the first states to adopt binding drinking water standards in 2020. Um, and then last year, an interagency task force uh, held a, a nearly year-long series of meetings and issued a comprehensive final report that has uh, now been reduced to legislative form and uh, is likely to be subject to debate. And some of it will probably be enacted by the legislature at some point in this session. Um, I'll link to that as well. So um, that gives you some sense of the scope of the regulatory efforts that are underway, but of course we can't cover it all today. And so we're gonna focus on one particular topic of interest, which is water. Um, drinking water is one of the most acute uh, exposure pathways for, for humans. And um, then on the other end, modifying drinking water treatment plants to reduce PFAS concentrations uh, is, can be immensely expensive and is gonna drive home the cost of, of remediating this problem to uh, ratepayers around the state and the country. So we have a fantastic expert panel uh, assembled here today. I can't thank everyone enough for joining us um, to discuss these issues. So let me give them quick introductions so we can get onto the, the meat of the discussion. Ken Morath, is the director of water division of the water division at EPA Region One, headquartered here in Boston, uh, which so that governs New England. Um, the water division comprises the drinking water and municipal assistance branch, the surface water protection branch, and the water permits branch. Permits branch um, with authority over pro programs including NIPTES per permitting, the Clean Water and Drinking Water Revolving Funds, stormwater permitting, and many more. Ken has previously held roles at EPA as an enforcement attorney and special assistant to the regional administrator, and he's a graduate of Cornell University and Harvard Law School. Kathy Baskin uh, is the assistant commissioner for the Bureau of Water Resources within the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection. Uh, her career is focused on protecting water resources across public, private, and nonprofit organizations. Uh, she worked for over a decade as the director of water policy for the Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs, and she previously worked for both the Charles River Watershed Association and the engineering firm Weston and Sampson. 
Kathy holds bachelor's and master's degrees in environmental engineering from Tufts and a master's in public administration from the Kennedy School at Harvard. Jennifer Peterson, um, uh, on my left, since 2006, Jen has served as executive director of the Massachusetts Waterworks Association, the premier organization rep representing drinking water professionals in the Commonwealth. Jen previously worked in the electric light and water departments of the town of Littleton, and she holds a bachelor's in political science and public policy from UMass Boston, as well as a master's in political science from Suffolk University. Uh, Last but not least, Moreo Fernandez Imora uh, is the interim co-director of the Massachusetts Chapter of Clean Water Action and Clean Water Fund, a national advocacy organization. At Clean Water Action since 2016, Moreo has advocated for replacing lead service lines in environmental justice communities, promoted clean energy in communities of color, and uh, uh, led other efforts to center underprivileged communities in the pursuit of environmental justice. He holds a bachelor's degree in political science and government from Smith College. Um, so let me put a plug in here for all of the attendees to uh, drop your questions in the Q&A. Um, we'll, we'll get to them as we go along and then definitely at the end. Um, and then, but before we get to the uh, panelists today, I wanted to toss it over to Peter for a quick update uh, on the latest developments in litigation. Peter, go ahead. Thanks, David. Um, so last uh, couple, last month almost, uh, May 18th, we had the PFAS litigation update. Uh, we discussed the multi-district litigation going on in the District of South Carolina. Last week, there was uh, two big announcements related to that litigation. Uh, the first is that DuPont and Kemmore's uh, reached an agreement in principle with the uh, class plaintiff group on a $1.185 billion settlement uh, that would address drinking water claims from water companies and water utilities around the United States. Uh, the settlement is expected to be finalized by the end of this month, um, and it will be subject to the approval of the MDL judge. Uh, the companies uh, will establish a settlement fund for payouts to public water systems with a current detection of PFAS at any level, and systems that are currently required to monitor for the presence of PFAS under EPA monitoring rules, even if they've not. Uh, currently detected any PFAS. And then um, about a day after that, 3M and the uh, plaintiffs in the MDL uh, uh, announced that they were postponing the start of the first bellwether trial in the multi-district litigation because they were close to reaching their own settlement. Uh, the judge entered a stay for three weeks um, while they discussed the settlement. The parties have until June 26 to reach a, a, an agreement. Uh, and uh, if they don't, the trial will start back up again. And this amount, settlement amount, is reportedly um, supposed to be $10 billion in amount. So um, that's what's new with the PFAS litigation uh, and the multi district litigation. Um, major, major news uh, on that front. So um, thanks, David, um, and good luck to the panel. Thanks, Peter. Uh, big updates there. Appreciate it. Um, so uh, turn it over to Ken. Can you update us on EPA? Sure, thanks very much. Um, and I'll just say before we start, this is quite a time in water. As I'm sure a lot of you are experiencing, there's so much happening on so many fronts with a flood of money coming in from the infrastructure law, as well as all kinds of policy challenges, changes in the legal landscape. So this is a really interesting time to be in the water program. This is one of the most interesting parts of it. Um, so I'm really 
happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. And I'm looking forward to learning from the other panelists as well. So let me put up a few slides and we'll start get started. Um, okay, um, so thanks for mentioning our EFAS roadmap, and that is definitely the place to go if you want a comprehensive summary of all the different things EPA is doing on PFAS. Um, it's a really comprehensive approach with a lot of pieces, a lot of action steps with timelines and so on. So if you really want to track what we're doing and what we've already done over the last couple of years and what we're planning on doing over the next couple, this is a really good source. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna be talking about what we've done so far since 2021 and where we're headed. Um, but before I do that, um, this is not a blank slide. If you look very carefully in the middle of the slide, you should be able to see one pixel lit. Now my screen has two million pixels, and that's fairly typical. That's 125,000 times the proposed standard EPA has set, our proposed drinking water standard. Um, so if you could imagine a screen of this same resolution that was the size of a football field, including the end zones and the sidelines, one pixel would be about the concentration that we're proposing to set as the drinking water standard. So just to give some sense of the scale of the challenge that we're facing, dealing with a contaminant that's problematic at levels this low, picking out one pixel in an area the size of a, of a football field, um, just to give a little bit of perspective. Um, so back to the roadmap, um, we issued a report last November that was basically a summary of the first year of progress under the roadmap. Um, we had committed to a number of actions between 21 and 24 um, that address a whole range of facets of the PFAS issue. So I'm going to focus on, uh, on the water issues and starting with really our headliner is the new proposed drinking water standard that we issued in March. Um, it's already been mentioned, but I'll go into a little bit of depth on this. Um, so we did propose a national primary drinking water regulation of a maximum contaminant level for six PFAS, six versions of PFAS in drinking water. For PFOA and PFAS, we proposed a four parts per trillion limit for each of those contaminants. And some of you may know states, states have taken many different approaches. Some of them have taken an approach of grouping contaminants together. Um, and in our case, we've separated out PFOA and PFAS for individual limits and then proposed four other PFAS listed on the slide um, to be regulated as a mixture with something called a hazard index. The limit is a hazard index of one, and the, the details of how that's calculated are all set forth in the proposed regulation. Um, so those are the proposed drinking water standards. We also propose, as we always do, um, health-based MCLGs which are the maximum contaminant level goals. Those are non-enforceable goals. A violation of those does not lead to enforcement, but those are designed, uh, those are intended to be the numbers that ideally we would meet to protect public health. Um, so those, those are set 
sometimes at lower levels, and we did that in this case, we set the PFOA and PFOS levels at zero um, because we have not seen in the science any level that we're confident where we can say that we're not seeing health impacts. Um, so a couple of comments about, about these and where we are in the process is we, we did put these out for public comment. The comment period closed on May 30th. Um, so we're now in the process of starting to dive into all the comments we received and we received many, many thoughtful comments. That's the indication so far as we're diving in. Um, our goal is to, is to go through those comments and develop a final rule by the end of this year. Um, but just a couple of comments about it. One is we do believe that there, as far as the MCLs are proposed, the, the four parts per trillion and the hazard index, um, we think there are effective treatment techniques that can get to those numbers. Um, we understand, of course, that it can be costly, that there's a real investment required. Um, so no one's going to say this is easy, um, but we do think there are effective treatment techniques that can get us there. Um, and there is a tremendous amount of funding coming, which I will talk about in a couple of slides from now. Um, so, so that's the biggest um, and most recent news is the proposed drinking water standard. But there's a whole bunch of things happening on the waterfront that I'd like to get into a little bit more. Um, and again, water is just one piece of the agency's overall strategy to deal with PFAS. But even within water, there's a tremendous amount going on. Um, so first piece of it is better data. We need a foundation of data in order to make sound decisions and then defend those decisions and have um, people understand that those are good decisions. Um, so the, it's the whole range of things, monitoring, um, assessments, um, all kinds of data collection. Um, some of you know, um, if you're active in the drinking water world that we're implementing now the fifth unregulated contaminant monitoring rule. So this is where we go out and, and sample for things that are currently unregulated, but that were are of enough concern that we need to collect some data to figure out what to do. So over the next two years, we'll be monitoring 29 additional PFAS compounds in thousands of drinking water systems across the country, just to collect more of a foundation of data. And you may remember, if you've been working in this area for a little while, that between 2013 and 2015, a previous UCMR, a previous uncontaminated monitoring unregulated contaminant monitoring effort um, was really what turned up the batch of data that led to a lot of significant state and local actions on PFAS when we first started turning it up through, through that UCMR. Um, and I do want to acknowledge just the tremendous work that our states have done in New England to really address this issue in an in an environment where there's very limited information, where we're learning more all the time. So, so by the nature of being involved in something like that, things are gonna change, um, but you also don't wanna wait when there's a significant public health issue. So I really wanna credit the states in our region for moving forward and doing the best they can with limited information to come up with sensible steps, monitoring um, the beginnings of regulation, working with their utilities to really get ahead of this problem as much as they can 
um, while we're still trying to figure out and do the underlying science and develop a consistent national approach, um, the states understandably couldn't wait for all that to be in place and moved ahead and did some really good things over the last few years. So I want to thank Kathy and all her counterparts across New England for, for all the work they've done. And I also want to credit our drinking water and wastewater utilities who are the ones actually on the front lines of these issues and are confronted with all kinds of, you know, what do, you, what do we do when we find this in our water? And our customers are concerned about whether it's safe or not. And what do we do when it shows up in the sludge from our wastewater treatment plant? We start having trouble disposing of sludge. So um, a huge thank you to all the operators of drinking water and wastewater systems across the region who are really trying, trying to figure this out in a really complicated um, environment. Um, so anyways, we're moving forward with all that data collection and analysis. Um, in this round of the UCMR, we're, we'll be testing for about five times as many types of PFAS as we did in the last round. We're doing it in a lot more water systems and we're using methods that can detect PFAS at much lower levels. So we're really hoping to get some really solid information from this round that can be used to inform the ongoing um, process of, of figuring out how to grapple with this issue. Um, all right, um, I'll talk a little bit about ELGs, where this is one of the approaches we can take to prevent PFAS from getting into the environment is to deal with industries that are discharging PFAS. And the ELGs are a primary tool to do that. The ELG stands for Effluent Limit Guidelines. For those of you who this is not your specialty. Um, and so we're looking at the industry, we're looking at who discharges, and we're we and, and ELG basically comes up with technology-based limits that can then be incorporated into discharge permits. So based on what kind of treatment is available and feasible, we'll develop numbers that can then be plugged into discharge permits. And so that hopefully will prevent um significant levels of PFAS from reaching wastewater treatment plants um, or, or from being discharged from, from, from facilities that have um, direct discharges into the water. Um, we're dealing um, with on a whole range of issues through our NIPTES permits. We put out some guidance last December um, that describes how we recommend using NIPTES permits to um, get more PFAS monitoring, both at wastewater treatment plants and at the industrial dischargers that are discharging into the treatment plants. Um, we're really hoping that pretreatment can be an important piece of this puzzle. So if a, if a wastewater treatment facility is having an issue with PFAS in its discharge, we really want to enable them, give them the tools to identify the industrial sources of that PFAS um, and then address those sources so that we can then keep the PFAS out of the discharge. So the so we put out some guidance to states uh, rec with recommendations on how they do that in their permits. And for our part, since we are the permit authority in Massachusetts and New Hampshire, we have been including uh, such requirements in our own NIPTES permits for the last couple of years. Um, so those are all, and all our permits are on our website. So if you're interested in seeing what we're requiring, that's all available. Um, we're also moving forward with um, improved analytical methods 
and this is really important and, and very basic to any kind of regulatory program is you need to know how to monitor for something. And this has been a lot of work has gone into this over the last couple of years. What are the methods that are scientifically sound and that labs have the capability to use that can give us all reliable information about how much PFAS is in a particular effluent or waste stream? Um, we have released draft water quality criteria. Again, a really important part of the Clean Water Act regulatory scheme. Um, and everything is ultimately driven by what are the criteria in, in, that we're trying to meet in the water. So we've put out draft aquatic life criteria, um, numbers that we think based on the science would protect aquatic life. We put those out for comment and we're working on finalizing those criteria. And then finally, of ever increasing importance and even urgency is PFAS and biosolids. Um, as many of you probably know, PFAS is showing up in, in, in biosolids at wastewater treatment plants and traditional disposal methods like land application, like composting, incineration, landfilling, every one of those has gotten more difficult as we've discovered P the PFAS issue. Um, and many wastewater treatment plants are having ongoing challenges figuring out what they're going to do with PFAS and the biosolids. Um, what we're trying to do is a risk assessment that's going to serve as the basis for determining whether or not we need to regulate the, the level of biosolids in these permits. Um, and that's really critical work because we we need to help the wastewater industry figure out the biosolids disposal issue. And fundamental to that is what are the levels um, that are, are safe and do we need regulatory uh, limits on PFAS and biosolids? Um, so I think you can get a feel from all that. We're at the very beginning of grappling with this, even though it's been with us for some years now, and a lot of people have done a lot of work on it. Um, from a from the standpoint, if you step back and think about this as a as a whole regulatory system, it's really like witnessing the birth of a star, where you see that all the the dust cloud coming together and starting to cohere. Um, and there are a lot of elements to it. There's the data collection. There's all the developing the science and how do you analyze it. There's figuring out how to assess the risk and translating that into a regulatory structure that includes water quality standards and permit limits and drinking water limits, that's all an incredibly complex apparatus that we already have for a lot of other things that we're all used to working with. And here it's just developing. So that's that's a challenging environment as we're all experiencing. Um, but I really have to say, I'm, I'm so impressed and grateful at all the great work that again, our state agencies and our utilities have done to try to make the best of this kind of complicated situation and deal responsibly with this emerging challenge. So finally, I'll talk about the money. Um, and it, we're quite fortunate to have kind of the, this infusion of funding coming in at just the right time. So the bipartisan infrastructure law that passed a couple of years ago is the largest investment in clean water that the federal government has ever made. There's $50 billion altogether um, that's going into water issues and 10 billion of that is specifically for emerging contaminants and primarily PFAS. Um, 
And so that $10 billion is over a five-year period. There are some real nice things about this pot of money. One is it does not require state matching funds. So unlike our our traditional state revolving fund program, um, states do not have to match this money. This is a purely federally, federally funded program. And all of this funding is provided either as grants or as loans with principal forgiveness. So again, unlike the state revolving fund, which is a pretty good deal because it's very low interest, but you still have to pay the loan back. In this case, the money is intended to go out as grants and, and principal forgiveness. Um, of that $10 billion, as you can see from the slide, $4 billion is going to go through the drinking water SRF, but again, with those special um, rules around it, a billion dollars through the Clean Water State Revolving Fund, and then $5 billion through a new grant program for small and disadvantaged communities. Um, so while we continue to develop the scientific um, understanding and while we continue to flesh out the regulatory structure, this funding will help communities that and utilities that really need to move ahead regardless because they're dealing with real issues that their consumers are concerned about. This provides some significant funding that hopefully will help. So I'll stop there and look forward to everyone's questions. Thanks, Ken. That was a terrific introduction um, to the, I love that metaphor of an emerging star, or a constellation of water regulations um, from, the, from the federal perspective. So um, turn it over to Kathy now. Um, what has MassDEP been up to? Okay, well, thank you. And um, thanks so much to uh, BBA for preparing this uh, forum and also inviting MassDEP to participate. Really appreciate um, participating with all these other folks. Um, so let me just start at the beginning here. Um, I'm Kathy Baskin. I'm the Assistant Commissioner at MassDEP. And um, we, three years ago, um, not quite three years ago, two and a half years ago, promulgated our own PFAS regulation. Um, and many of our audience members are very well familiar with the, the regulation. Um, some of them are actually working at MassDEP and uh, provide very valuable advice to the Bureau on administering um, this program. But we are um, we are regulating six PFAS and we regulate the sum of the six. Uh, the sum cannot exceed 20 parts per trillion. And I'd love to see, you know, how what that pixel looks like on Ken's screen. I thought that was a really great representation of um you know, how low we need to go because this is a, um, a suite of contaminants that do not break down, they do not go away, they bioaccumulate, and that's the issue is that they just keep adding up. So that very small amount adds onto the very small amount from yesterday and keeps adding on. Um, so one thing I will note about our own program is that we wrote a requirement in the regulations for ourselves, and that is that we will be looking at the science as it pertains to our regulations every three years. Our first triennial, triennial review is due um, at the end of this year, 
Um, but we are acknowledging that that will probably be somewhat influenced by where EPA comes out with its own um, drinking water standard. And we don't know exactly if we will be issuing our review right on the date in December or if we'll be waiting to see where the federal government lands. Um, but it will be shortly, uh, you know, it'll be right around that time. Um, so a little bit more about what MassDEP is doing. Um, we have our regulations require routine monitoring of uh, the public water systems that are considered community systems um, and non-transient non-community systems. Um, that is a term that's used um, to describe public water systems that serve the same 25 or more people, um, but they are small, they're not serving a whole uh, community or municipality, they're serving perhaps um, a school. The same people come in, they drink the water, and then they leave. And that's as opposed to a transient um, non-community system, which might be a restaurant. Different people, different 25 people come in every day, and um, so the exposure is different. However, everyone has had to sample at least once. Um, and we have been working on if we found transient uh, public water systems with high concentrations, we are developing uh, limits for them as well through our Office of Research and Standards. Um, so we have uh, a way of determining whether or not the our systems are in compliance or not based on the frequency of monitoring. Um, when we have three months in a row where the average um, has been exceeded uh, or is exceeding the 20 parts per trillion, then that's what we call a violation. Um, and that's interesting because that will be, uh, that's different from what the federal government has proposed where they're looking at an annual average. Um, and so these are some of the, um, the differences between the state um, regulations and what the federal government is considering and how we'll have to reconcile our own drinking water standards once uh, the, the EPA standard is finalized. Um, we do have the benefit of our Office of Research and Standards, uh, who, uh, which is um, staffed by many toxicologists who are uh, reviewing the, the latest data. Um, as well as the data that EPA has been relying on for its own standard setting. Um, we have done our own review of EPA's uh, proposed standard and we submitted comments as I understand 12,000 other folks did um, to the federal government on the proposed standard. Um, and I put the, um, the link to our comment letter in the um, in my presentation, it's a little bit of a long URL there. If you need, um, I I could probably put it in the link in the chat, or somebody could certainly email me, and I'm happy to send those comments. Um, we were in general very supportive of the federal government's efforts to regulate PFAS in drinking water. We think that's a really critical public health. Uh, step to take. We're we're in favor of that. We had some very specific um, toxicological uh, comments, and we also considered the impacts of actually enforcing 
Uh, we looked at things like the cost estimation proposed uh, or developed by EPA. We thought it would underrepresented the costs. Um, we were concerned about lab capacity um, and certainly information that's accessible to um, to the public water system, to the customers, to uh, people who are regulating and um, asking EPA to develop those materials so, to help us uh, move forward. Uh, let's see. Now, I already mentioned that there, there would be, uh, we would have to take a look at how we do our averaging and whether we exceed a, a drinking water MCL after um, three months of an average, three month average exceeding, or if it's a year. Uh, but there are some other things that we all have to consider. For example, both MassDEP and EPA are, uh, EP, DEP regulates six PFAS, EPA has proposed to regulate six PFAS, but only four overlap. So we at the state will have to figure out what to do with those other two PFAS. Um, and will they get rolled into something? Will we be uh, regulating them separately? How, what are we gonna do with that? So that, that's something we'll have to consider. And that's, um, uh, you know, as a result of coming out in front or ahead of the federal government on standard setting. Um, and so I would say that's probably, those are two of the bigger issues that we'll have to reconcile um, depending on where EPA finally lands with their, um, their rule. Um, another thing is the impact on our water systems. Um, the, the moving down from a limit of 20 parts per trillion for the sum of six PFAS to limits that include four parts per trillion for PFOS and also four parts per trillion for PFOA, um, will, that will not be insignificant. And the number of systems that we've estimated, this is only an estimate, and we certainly haven't done an, a year's worth of analysis on this to figure out, and we aren't at the point when the rule has already taken place, and those are the concentrations that matter the most, not the concentrations that have happened in the past. However, we do have a general sense of where we may land. So right now we have um, 49 systems that are not complying with our PFAS drinking water limit. And, and that doesn't mean that they are, um, that they're violating willingly and um, you know not doing anything about it. They are definitely working on solutions. But solutions take time and money. And so, you know, where some folks, some water suppliers can turn off a well and that takes care of you. They turn off the contaminated well and they're fine. They can use their other water source and they have ample water in those other water sources. Or perhaps they can activate an emergency connection to a neighboring community and get clean water. But there are others that don't have those options. They have to build treatment. Um, treatment takes uh, a considerable amount of time to design and then make and build finance. Um, and so, you know, it may take a few years for some of these 49 to actually get to their um, meeting water quality standards. Um, 
what we estimate is that at the once the federal rule is passed, should it pass at the levels that are proposed, um, that there could be a, another 150, 149, some number like that, so that the total pool might quadruple. Um, so that puts a lot of, um, you know, that engages more than a fifth of our public water systems, and um, certainly will put some um, some major emphasis of PFAS on uh, the staff at DEP. Uh, and believe me, there's already a huge emphasis on, on PFAS at DEP. So, um, you know, and, and, and not only that, but those first 49, we're gonna want to help them comply with a standard that is lower. So if they're aiming for 20 now, we are in, encouraging them to come talk to our um, regional offices at DEP about alternatives. Um, so an alternative that may work for now, but perhaps won't work in the future would be um, blending two, two sources of water to, uh, for example, maybe there's a source that's contaminated and one that is clean. Um, and depending on the proportions of water that you take out, maybe you can bring your water to 10 parts per trillion instead of 21. Um, but that would work for now, but it may not work in the future. Um, and so we're also encouraging the public water systems to come in and talk about their options and um, take advantage of this very generous funding that's available through the bipartisan infrastructure law um, currently. And I'll just mention, um, you know, I didn't put, I knew we were going to have some from good discussion around um, federal funding. And so I didn't have a slide on that. But uh, Massachusetts is very fortunate to have um, received a lot of money from the bipartisan infrastructure law. Uh, we'll be getting over $1 billion a year for both clean water and drinking water, um, which the pivot between 2021 and 22 was remarkable. So we doubled our uh, the number of dollars that we could give out in SRF loans, um, and we more than doubled the number of projects. So in one year, so that impact is just remarkable. Um, so uh, just a little recap on what we're doing. Um, right now with respect to you know where we are. Um, so we have reviewed the proposed MCLs. Uh, we are considering them in our three-year review, as I mentioned. We have conducted monitoring at all of our public water systems. Um, and um, through the generosity of the federal government and also uh, with input from the state government, we have been able to invest more than $212 million in funding in P for PFAS contamination. Almost all of that is in the drinking water side. Um, you know, we do expect that there will be some as EPA uh, develops the, its surface water quality uh, criteria uh, more. And as we um, have more discussions around land application of residuals. I, you know, there could be more projects that go into the clean water side, but right now our uh, projects are almost all on the drinking water side. Um, and we are um, 
encouraging or reaching out to those public water systems that that may need the help with the new regulation. Um, so what we're telling, this is um, you know important for us to make sure that we get the message out to the public water systems to let them know, um, you know what's going on because it's been confusing actually. Um, there have been health advisories. Uh, we had our own health advisory. The EPA has had two health advisories. We have our uh, MCL. The federal government has proposed an MCL. The numbers are all over the place. And so we are um, trying to work closely with the public water systems to um, keep them apprised of what's going on. We recently sent a letter to them to let them know um, that they're not regulated right now by the federal proposed federal limit, um, but that they should be mindful of it. They should be looking for technical assistance um, that um, we have the, um, there, there's also the, there are some technical um, analyses that need to be conducted in order to determine whether uh, one would meet the proposed EPA standard um, through the hazard index, which is a, a math equation and um, giving some examples there to public water systems so that they understand what that means. It includes a couple of parameters that haven't been regulated in Massachusetts before. Um, you know, and what we're telling folks is if, if they are above these limits, they should definitely, above the proposed limits, they should come into um, the, the regional offices at DEP to discuss their plans and also hopefully take advantage of the federal funding that's available over the next few years through the bipartisan infrastructure law. If they are, um, if they're between a detection limit and the proposed limit for, then we're we're encouraging them also to come in and talk to our regional offices to understand that better. If they're below the detection limit, um, which we have set in our regulations at two parts per trillion, then we are recommending that they do not need to take any action. So we've sort of outlined what what they might do in terms of how looking at their data and where they should go next with respect to getting advice. Um, I'll just mention another activity that has gone on in the Commonwealth and um, Commissioner Suberg, a former commissioner of MassDEP participated on the, um, the legislature's PFAS task force, which prepared a report um, and issued it last, last spring. Um, and it builds, it advances um, this, there's an omnibus bill through the legislation through the legislature that advances the um, the recommendations of the PFAS task force. So uh, we will see what happens with the omnibus bill. Um, you know, we we don't know for sure where it will land, um, but it does establish a trust fund uh, to help the municipalities and public water systems. Um, with the cost of addressing PFAS, it directs the agencies to take action in terms of outreach, um, especially in EJ communities. 
Uh, the omnibus bill also defines PFAS as a class for regulation in food packaging and consumer products. So starting to get at the source and not just um, you know, on the receiving end, because I will note that public water systems and wastewater treatment plants are on the receiving end of PFAS. They're not the generators, but they're the ones who have to manage the problem. Um, and prohibits intentionally added PFAS into uh, products. Um, and then finally, one more slide on um, the omnibus bill, um, which does direct um, DEP to take some action on um, monitoring for PFAS um, in surface water, in surface water and groundwater, um, to propose effluent limitations. So getting at the uh, the wastewater side of the equation here, also prohibiting um, use of the um, Class B firefighting foam that con contains uh, PFAS. So that's uh, you know certainly a triple F has been a source of PFAS um, throughout the country, definitely in the Commonwealth. Um, requiring uh, fire departments to notify DEP upon the release of um, certain firefighting foams. And, and that's something we're actually um, mindful of. So there have been some recent explosions and fires at um, some notable facilities on, um, on the South Shore and also on the North Shore. And um, one of the first things we do is um, find out what type of firefighting material was used and then um, embark on monitoring, water quality monitoring, uh, because right after the foam comes the water. And so that can wash the um, PFAS into receiving waters. Um, so we're looking for any um, impacts. Um, and a uh, couple of other things the omnibus bill does is prevent uh, or prohibit the sale of firefighting personal protective equipment with intentionally added PFAS and directs the Department of Public Health to, re to report data related to occupational exposure to PFAS. So there's a lot there to unpack. We don't know where it will land, um, but we do think that the legislature will pick up some of these recommendations from the task force. Um, and so that is it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Kathy. That was, that was terrific um, and really helpful to expand out of it there uh, to the other other efforts uh, in the state um, and potentially through the legislature. Um, re quick reminder to everybody to please um, drop your any questions you might have in the Q and A um, as we get closer to that that part of the program. Uh, but right now, turn it over to uh, Jennifer Peterson from the Mass Waterworks Association uh, to give the perspective of the um, <clears throat> entities who are sort of on the front line in uh, dealing with this problem. Um, our, our water works, our water treatment facilities. So Jennifer, take it away. Great, thank you, David. And thanks to the BBA for hosting this. Um, as uh, David said, Mass Water Works is an association of water works professionals. So we have over 1400 members who are indeed on the front lines of this. Um, I'm gonna say that I think Ken's uh, reference to a star emerging for us, it's like an asteroid about to hit. It is, uh, caused us um, a lot of challenges over the last uh, three years, especially. And um, I'm gonna walk through some of those challenges so that you get a better understanding of how this um, is uh, 
being um, felt practically. So um, as uh, Kathy and Ken alluded to, um, we are fortunate that treatment is possible for PFAS in drinking water. Um, but as David mentioned, it can be quite substantial in terms of its cost. And it, it really is a lengthy process to get through. So I'm giving you just a snippet of the uh, systems that have incurred such costs. Some of these have been paid by responsible parties. Others, a responsible party hasn't been determined. And so the ratepayers are left to fund the treatment on their own. Um, the funding is going through the state revolving loan fund program for the most part, and the intended use plans, which DEP releases, um, have contained a number of PFAS projects. Um, if you're not familiar with the state revolving loan fund program, it is a competitive loan program. So you submit your project and it's ranked and scored amongst other projects that come into the queue and DEP releases the final list of projects that are gonna go forward. Um, PFAS has been scoring high on, on the intended use plan. And so we are seeing a lot of PFAS projects moving forward, um, almost to the detriment of other sort of bread and butter infrastructure projects that we desperately need to work on, like replacement of pipes and upgrades uh, of treatment plants for other reasons aside from PFAS. Uh, they are loans. And as um, Ken and, and Kathy indicated, you know, these loans in Massachusetts, the Clean Water Trust has put them at a 0% interest rate. Uh, there may be some principal forgiveness given to some projects, but for the most part, they are loans that will need to be paid back by ratepayers, um, unless, and of course, un, unless a, a responsible party is determined. Um, the funding to date, um, as Kathy said, it's been quite extensive, 212 million. There have been additional small grant projects targeted towards uh, very small systems or or you know, to help with the funding for design. Um, so a little bit of grant money, but the projects have been nowhere near sufficient to uh, cover the costs that are being incurred. We have 170 public water systems in Massachusetts that have detected over the 20 part per trillion Massachusetts standard. And as Kathy said, as we look forward towards the EPA standard, that number will grow um, exponentially. Um, I, I want to, you know, we're very grateful for the bipartisan infrastructure funding, but I just want to point out that it is once in a generation funding um, that 10 billion that Ken referenced is is a national figure. We are not going to get 10 billion here in Massachusetts. Um, and, you know, as as folks were preparing to comment on the EPA proposal, there was um, the American Water Works Association did um, did engage with Black and Veatch, a consulting firm, and they looked at the cost estimates and, and peg it at about $3.2 billion annualized. Um, I think EPA's numbers uh, on the low end were around 757 million, up to 1.3 billion annualized, but certainly that EPA um, figure we think is quite low. And, and certainly if we're looking at uh, $3.2 billion of annualized costs, the MDL settlement isn't going to get us anywhere near there, nor is, is the BIL funding. So just want to have um, folks keep that in mind. So uh, we have had a lot of focus on PFAS and drinking water, um, not so much uh, focus on other exposure points. Um, as, as has been indicated, this is ubiquitous. It's in everything. It's everywhere. Uh, consumer products, food, air, 
Um, there hasn't been a lot of, uh, of, of meaningful action on source control. Um, you know, as Kathy said, the legislation that we're contemplating here in Massachusetts will look at that. Some other states have looked at that, but there really needs to be federal effort to, to get at the source control piece. It has been challenging for our water systems in Massachusetts when there have been differing standards in Massachusetts than federal and even other states. So if someone has a summer home in New Hampshire, they wonder why the values are different in New Hampshire than they are in Massachusetts. And our water systems get questions like that. You know, why is it okay for me to drink it in New Hampshire at X level, but not in Massachusetts? Um, Ken um, talked about the analytical piece and it is, um, it's been frustrating for us, the variability in analytical results that we have seen. Um, we have uh, systems sending split samples to different labs and in our comments to EPA, we noted one system that sent the same exact sample to two different labs and had an eight PPT difference in the results that came back to it. That's significant. We have had systems who have had to have a fire drill of sorts when they have had sort of no detections in their water. And then all of a sudden their lab reports that they had 42 parts per trillion. And you wonder, wow, how did that happen? Like, you know, that particular system was trying to investigate all over, like what happened? What did we do? Did something change in the treatment plant? And it turned out that the lab had incorrectly coded the sample and run it wrong, you know, but for that system, it was a period of a couple weeks of uncertainty and um, no water system wants to be in that um, in that situation. We have seen significant delays in lab reporting. And then because of the sensitivity of these analyses, um, DEP has been doing its own quality um, assurance checks. And so it could be, you know, three, four, five weeks before we get sort of verified results back. And ongoing sampling costs have been significant. So in Massachusetts, where you have results over 10 parts per trillion, it triggers monthly sampling. Um, if you have many sources, this can quickly add up to significant costs. Um, we have one utility whose sample budget in 2020 was $50,000 and is now $100,000. So um, that's kind of the magnitude of, of sampling increases that some folks have seen through this. Typical sample is about $350. If you get a, deten a detection of PFAS, then they, then they run the field blank, which sort of doubles the cost. So we're looking at about $700. Per, um, per sample that's analyzed. Um, I put here that procurement law changes may be needed. And certainly in the beginning of folks dealing with um, PFAS, uh, you know, no customer wants to have this in their water, nor does any utility. So they try to work very quickly. Our procurement laws in Massachusetts are very specific in terms of the number of bids over certain thresholds. Um, that has, uh, produced a challenge for some people. And uh, we had one community that had to go for emergency procurement so that they could build the structure needed to house the uh, vessels um, because they were you know, encroaching upon winter, they needed to have it up and, and running. So those are the sorts of things that we, um, we hope that the legislature looks at, like, can we make our procurement laws easier around this? Can we put certain things on you know, the state bid list? Um, those, are, those are things that we think need to be looked at. Um, supply chain, you know, we're no different in the water world than you are in any aspect of your life right now with supply chain concerns. Um, 
We have had systems who have embarked on treatment and have ordered their gar- their carbon vessels first thing, and they sit there while the rest of the structure is built so that they are there and available. We've had carbon vessels um, be nine months out. We had uh, one system that had a 52-week lead time on the, the type of vessel they needed. So as Kathy said, it can be um, a long process. In Massachusetts, the way in which the standard was set that it required the water systems to have a provision of alternative water source to sensitive subpopulations. Um, So in some cases that meant distribution of bottled water to those sensitive subpopulations. Uh, Wayland reported when they first had their detection, they were spending $25,000 a week on bottled water. Um, It gets very uh, complex logistically to move that amount of bottled water out into the community. So these are things that we've been grappling with. Some folks are looking at giving bill credits to those sensitive subpopulations so they can go out and buy bottled water and then get reimbursed by the utility. Some utilities have installed sort of like a vending machine at one central location in the town where the community can go and fill up and have PFAS free water. So we're, we're trying to be creative with that alternative um, water source, but it has been a challenge. Um, As I said, you know, if there are responsible parties, um, we do want to hold them accountable, but there have been delays in investigating who's responsible for the contamination. You know, DEP um, set forward with a groundwater cleanup standard and a drinking water standard, both at 20 parts per trillion. Uh, There was the commitment that any drinking water um, detect over 20 parts per trillion would lead back to sort of a source investigation piece. But Simply, they haven't had the manpower to follow up on all that in a timely fashion, uh, aside from the other groundwater contamination they're seeing. So um, so that's certainly been a bit of a frustration for some utilities who have had to go out and sort of begin their own investigation of where their um, water may be being contaminated from. Um, We are... uh, Obviously, now at the point where we're seeing what a federal standard could look like, but for the last three years, we know that this has been on EPA's mind to create a drinking water standard. And so we've been designing and investing in solutions for the Massachusetts standard with the understanding that it could change. Um, Essentially, the, the treatment components are the same. It's a question of how quickly the media will be sort of clogged with the PFAS and have to be replaced, what that um, process might be how frequently you're gonna be changing the media. That is expensive in and of itself. Some systems, it's $100,000 to get rid of the um, old media, get new media. So um, so certainly we are concerned that there'll be more frequent media changeouts if EPA goes with their standard of four parts per trillion. And then in all of this, there are ongoing operations and maintenance costs, um, which fall to the utility. There is no sort of funding to cover O&M. Um, The funding uh, mainly targets capital investments. And then we are, you know, generally concerned that there there has been, in many cases, a loss of public confidence in the quality of tap water because of PFAS. And and certainly we take great pride in the the essential service we're providing to our communities. And so, you know, that hurts a lot of our members that that folks just don't want to drink the water if um, they're afraid that there's something in it that could be dangerous. Um, so Massachusetts is regulating, um, public drinking water systems. Um, they are not regulating private wells, but because, uh, PFAS is so, um, prevalent, 
you know, there is this question of um, what about private wells? And the legislature has asked DEP to look at that. And DEP did embark on sampling in communities that were predominantly private wells. Um, they are finding PFAS in those private wells. The boards of health have jurisdiction over the private wells. Um, so it's not a public water system issue at that point, but certainly some boards of health have been looking at, you know, what they might do to protect their private well owners. So the town of Harvard is requiring testing of wells in certain areas if there's construction or sale of the property. Um, and then private well owners have this sort of added complexity of perhaps being subject to 21E waste site investigation if they find groundwater on their property that's over you know, the groundwater cleanup standard. And so DEP had to put some sort of um, disclaimers around that when they did the private well sampling, just to make sure that folks were aware of, the, of that possibility. Um, Mass DEP, as, uh, as Ken alluded, is uh, requiring PFAS sampling in NIPTES permits, but yet there's no approved method. De uh, EPA's method that they're looking at for wastewater is still in draft form. So those permittees have to go through that extra step of, you know, sort of getting their lab process approved from the Office of Research and Standards. Uh, Ken talked a bit about biosolids, but for those of you who don't know, you know, some wastewater utilities, for instance, the Mass Water Resources Authority, they take their biosolids and produce um, a beneficial product out of it, which is, uh, you know, a fertilizer pellet that they were then selling. But um, some states like the state of Maine have now banned uh, land application of sludge or biosolids. So that is um, it's really complicating things for the wastewater systems. I don't deal with wastewater, but a lot of my members have crossover of wastewater and drinking water. And so um, even our treatment, our water or drinking water treatment plants that have to get rid of their sludge are seeing increased costs. And, um, and we're seeing it not accepted where it traditionally was, those incineration units in the landfills that Ken talked about. Um, there's always the question of, you know, what happens if the municipality is the responsible party for the contamination? And so we know that, you know, a lot of the contamination is due to firefighting activity or firefighter training activity. Um, in the town of Princeton, they are paying for remediation of private wells. Um, it sort of emanated from their town campus where there had been some fire training activity. They had also had a couple of spots of firefighting activity. Um, I think their LSP noted, and it's noted on their website, that they're even concerned that um, septic discharge is contributing. You know, if you have uh, drinking water wells that are um, high in levels of PFAS and they're sort of running through and out into your septic system, you could be contaminating um, your groundwater that way as well. Uh, we are overall concerned that we really are not addressing the problem of curtailing PFAS. We're moving it around our environment, and that's um, certainly not the best solution. You know, we have some of the, the best academic minds in the state of Massachusetts. We really think that the federal government, the state has to be investing in permanent destruction technologies. I think that's the only way in which we're going to find, you know, permanent solutions to this. Otherwise, you know, we're just, you know, we, we take it out of the water, but we put it in that media, then we got to dispose of the media. And we know that there are lots of concerns with how that disposal occurs. Um, I, I won't go into this too much, but just to say that, you know, the Clean Water Trust is the way that principally all of the bipartisan infrastructure law funding is, is going. Um, and so if you have clients that are needing to remediate um, on the drinking water side, or, you know, want to be looking at the wastewater side, really need to be um, paying attention to the Clean Water Trust timeline. They opened up 
their um, project solicitations earlier this year. So they are open now and they are due in August of 2023. But there is, you know, sort of a standard process. This is the the chart from last um, last year, but it should follow a pretty similar process for how you um, how you get access to that funding and how you obtain the agreements that needed are needed to move forward. And I've provided you with the the contact information for both the folks at the trust and at DEP who oversee all of that funding. Uh, Kathy did quite well in sort of summing up the omnibus legislation. This was a result of. Uh, the interagency task force, which Mass Waterworks sat on. The report's quite comprehensive, and so I'd urge you to take a look at that. I've provided you with a link. Um, the legislation that Kathy spoke about actually has a hearing coming up next week on June 21st uh, before the Joint Committee on Public Health. And so folks are encouraged to certainly comment on that um, on that legislation. It is great that it sets up a remediation fund. It has no money tied to the remediation fund. There's no appropriation. And so, you know, I think there's some um, thought that, you know, the uh, then Attorney General Moore Healy entered into that multi-district litigation. And so if there is a settlement, maybe a pot of money will come to Massachusetts and that remediation fund will be funded through, you know, an MDL set settlement. But certainly, um, you know, it, it's great to see the emphasis on, you know, the, the funding, but we, it's it's empty without appropriations. So we really need to, to look at appropriating that. Um, here's my contact information. I, I have been in this for uh, the better part of three years, um, helping our members navigate it. Happy to talk with anyone who has particular questions about um, the treatment side of things or put you in, in contact with folks who can get you those answers. So thanks for the opportunity. Thank you, Jen, that was terrific. Um... I wish I wish I had taken a picture this weekend. I was sat on my uh, water treatment plant uh, near where I live in Cambridge, where they've installed a number of, I think five or six new carbon filter, uh, or they replaced the media. It's just an immense system. That's really impressive to look at, or like a football field in length. Anyway, um, get right on to Moreo uh, to provide the. Uh, perspective of activists and environmentalists and are we going far enough um, with these regulatory developments um, and then one last plug to everybody to please get your um, questions into the Q&A so we're rapidly approaching uh, the bottom of the hour and the end of the program. Rail, over to you. Thank you so much David and I'll try to keep it uh, short so we've got plenty of time for questions so my name is Mario Fernandez Imora, and I am the interim co-director of Clean Water Action as well as Clean Water Fund of Massachusetts. And PFAS has been for a number of years one of our top priorities, um, and we engage around it in a number of ways. So we were very active in um, the original regulatory process by DEP to establish that first uh, maximum contaminant level for PFAS in drinking water. Um, and within that, we also worked with impacted communities to try to make that um, public process as accessible as possible um, so that so the people could really raise their concerns and also hopefully um, establish better communication because these um, topics are really wonky and it's difficult for you know your average person who gets served a drinking water notice to really fully follow um, the landscape of what's happening and what that means more immediately for them. Um, and we're also involved um, in what I'm going to talk about, um, you know, perhaps more than more than I should, because I know this is about PFAS regulations. But I've got to say, I just I really agree with Jennifer and others when we talk about PFAS regulations. Um, 
We need to also talk about the fact that until we eliminate PFAS at its source, which you'll hear me say a lot, um, we're really only putting a Band-Aid on, um, on a larger problem that, that won't be solved until we can eliminate uses of PFAS um, wherever and whenever possible. Um, so I'll talk a little bit um, on legislation that's already been touched on at the state level. Um, and I have a little piece about uh, corporate accountability, which is also really important. But to get us started, um, I know that, so like I said, I know that most of this is about drinking water regulations. Um, one role that I really like as an advocate is that I feel like I have the ability to zoom out a little bit um, and look at issues like PFAS with a wider lens um, that hopefully helps build a better public narrative um, so that there's more awareness of all of the different solutions and strategies at our disposal. Um, to not only eliminate existing PFAS um, from our environment as much as possible, but also to stop PFAS upstream at its source. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about um, why we care so much about this issue. Um, you know, this is a very uh, complicated issue. It's expensive um, and it's necessary to address. We're not doing ourselves any favors um, by waiting to take action. So we're really happy um, both that First DEP and now EPA are taking really strong and decisive action on this issue. Um, because with PFAS, there are a lot of problems. Uh, we don't know everything, but we know plenty. We know that um, over 12,000 PFAS chemicals are currently identified by EPA, likely to be more. Um, and we know that there's a growing body of research that analyzes um, the fact that even it's very small concentrations, these chemicals can cause really significant health impacts. Um, and because there are so many chemicals um, within this class, it would be probably impossible to ever get to a place where we have um, research on each individual chemical and that research will always be growing, which is why um, we really believe in heating early warnings. Um, there are a number of chemicals that have really similar structures to the ones that are um, either currently regulated by DEP or that um, are proposed to be regulated currently by the EPA. Um, and because we know that these have similar structures and there's a growing body of research to exist that um, PFAS as a class is unsafe, uh, Clean Water Action continues to work towards um, a class-based approach. And we advocate for that even at the same time as that we understand that um, the research and some of the treatment technology and cost does need to be figured out. So we're very supportive of, you know, any regulation that is feasible currently while always wanting to have our North Star being eliminating PFAS as a class and therefore um, eliminating future um, necessity to keep doing this over and over again as we learn more and we learn more about the impacts to our environment. Um, and lastly, we know that PFAS lasts uh, well, they're called the forever chemicals. They last a long time. Some PFAS may last thousands of years. Um, so again, going back to some concerns around um, the need for research, the fact that we're still learning, the fact that this is expensive. To me, the bottom line is that this problem isn't going away. And the sooner we tackle it, even imperfectly, um, the sooner we're gonna get to a place where we have the information that we need and we have some examples of what early action actually yielded. Um, so that we can eventually eliminate this problem once and for all. And we know that PFAS is everywhere. 
Uh, we're exposed to it directly through consumer products. It contaminates food sources. It's in the air we breathe. And inevitably, all of that PFAS often ends up in drinking water through various ways across the country, and certainly as we're seeing within Massachusetts. Um, both, as they, both as products begin and end their life cycles, um, they can end up in landfills and seep through the ground into water sor sources. Uh, they travel in effluent discharge when industry is actually manufacturing products that contain PFAS, and that goes into surface and groundwater. Um, they stay in sludge that's then applied to agricultural land, which repollutes water sources as well as food sources. And that cycle just tends to continue over and over again. Um, and we know that this already has led to significant consequences to communities. So again, yes, research is building, but we have a really clear sense of um, what PFAS, especially in really large quantities, can cause. Um, we know that it's linked to things like suppressed immune system, higher cancer risk, reproductive health issues, and more. And research continues to grow to suggest that even at very low doses, um, because, because in addition to the fact that PFAS doesn't leave our environment quickly, it also accumulates in our bodies. So we might actually be slowly building up our exposure faster than our body can actually rid itself of PFAS. And you can read about two examples of how this has played out um, in New England, uh, in Merrimack, New Hampshire, um, they're home to a factory that produces PFAS lined glass and fabrics. Um, new studies are coming out that are showing that um, residents have a 47% higher risk of thyroid cancer compared to the US population um, and a 69% higher risk when you compare the, that community um, to others that share similar demographics and risks. Um, and then in Maine, we um, have seen a number of farms, including in Arendelle, Maine, um, have to close because they unfortunately did apply toxic PFAS lay sludge to farmland. Um, and it resu resulted in drinking water um, and dairy milk levels that were um, so far beyond even um, EPA's previous health guidance. Um, for instance, there was a farmer whose blood, after two full years of ceasing all consumption, of drinking water um, as well as dairy milk from the farm, his blood continues to um, test 20 times higher than the general US population um, because we unfortunately all uh, have PFAS in our blood from different exposures. Um, and so that's all the bad news. So the good news is there are a number of solutions um, along the way. And so I know this is about um, proposed changes to the regulatory landscape. And again, as an advocate, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't stress that drinking water regulations are just one piece of the picture. And really the solution comes down to eliminating PFAS at its source um, because it will inevitably um, end up in the drink, drinking water. Um, so ultimately we do want to remove PFAS at its source and um, that includes stopping PFAS before it's ever um, created and it also includes um, stopping uh, industrial discharge for industries that are already creating PFAS um, products. So as we're focused on ending the use of PFAS as a class wherever possible, we do in the meantime have a responsibility to identify and protect communities who are already facing exposure to PFAS chemicals. Because drinking water is a significant pathway of PFAS exposure, addressing that contamination before it reaches our taps is key to reducing associated health problems. Uh, I'm mostly going to talk about the Clean Water Act, but I you know, just want to remind us the Safe Drinking Water Act requires national drinking water standards uh, to present a really meaningful opportunity to reduce health risks. And um, 
given um, that PFAS makes up a significant portion of our exposure and it's a significant pathway of exposure, uh, we think EPA's proposal does just that. It really does meaningfully um, reduce health risks related to PFAS. Uh, EPA estimates that 94 million Americans are currently served by drinking water, um, which would exceed those proposed regulatory levels. Um, and we think that the proposed regulations um, are really a great step. So EPA's proposal for those six PFAS um, would set the national standard for PFO and PFOS at the lowest detection level that's currently approved by the agency. Um, and we really commend EPA's use of a hazard index approach for the other four chemicals, Gen X, PFBS, PFNA, and PFHXS. Um, that to us shows that, P, that um, EPA recognizes that um, recognizes the growing body of research that um, demonstrates risks associated not only with PFAS chemicals individually, but that that risk might actually grow when there are multiple PFAS chemicals in the mix that people are exposed to. Um, like many members of the PFAS class, PFBS, PFNA, Gen X, PFHS, XS, all have similar chemical structures and they cause similar health effects. Um, so many of the communities are exposed to and harmed by um, not just one PFAS chemical, but a mix of those chemicals in their drinking water. And so we think that um, EPA's proposed regulations will provide a framework to continue to address additional PFAS chemicals and mixtures of chemicals um, in the future as we continue to learn more. So um, bottom line is we like these regulations. Um, we submitted commentary urging EPA to pass them as quickly as possible. Um, and of course, we could always be doing more both on the regulatory and the legislative side. Um, I'll touch on a couple of pieces of legislation that um, we haven't talked as much about and this is very much not my role, so I'm not gonna get into trying to explain it, but I do just wanna say that um, litigation does need to be um, a huge component, not only to remediating PFAS, but ensuring that we do so in a way that does hold companies accountable that have proceeded recklessly, rather than placing the entire financial burden on water utilities and their ratepayers, even as we understand that um, it's, we need to we need to move without waiting um, to figure out exactly how that plays out. So the Clean Water Act, in addition to the so in addition to the proposed EPA regulations, the Clean Water Act has a number of tools that we can use. Uh, so we've talked about NIPTES permits um, and the fact that in Massachusetts EPA um, controls those. Uh, one thing that I did want to say is that um, we're really excited about the ELGs that EPA has proposed um, and in accordance with the with the current EPA roadmap. Um, one thing that Clean Water Action has been really vocal about um, is really encouraging EPA to act even faster um, and create additional ELGs for industries um, that don't currently have those so that um, states and in this case EPA New England can be even more effective um, as we um, add PFAS testing and, and remediation requirements into um, NIPTES permits um, as they come up for new or for review or as new um, permits are, are requested. Uh, one quick note, um, according to EPA's memo, we don't need to wait um, for those permits to expire and need to be renewed. Um, states do have the power to um, add PFAS requirements into existing NIPTES permits. And so, um, we really believe that states should be doing that. And we also believe that um, by widening the number of industries that have um, effluent guidelines, as well as best management practices, 
that will be better able to actually, um, you know, address PFAS contamination before it ever starts. Um, and there are some examples of how NIFTY's permits have been used really effectively by other states. So in North Carolina, North um, Chemours NIFTY's permit was revoked actually in order to prevent further dumping of the PFAS chemical Gen X into the water. Um, and NIFTYs can also be utilized to actually make companies clean up their pollution, um, which also happened in North Carolina when Chemours was required to remove 99% of the existing PFAS in a contaminated stream that um, flowed into a main drinking water source. So the bottom line um, in terms of how the federal and state regulations will play with each other is that um, we have really applauded DEP on their early efforts um, to visibilize this issue both within Massachusetts um, and I think it's safe to say a lot of early action from states has prompted um, faster, faster federal action than we might have seen otherwise. And so even though there are things to figure out about how um, the existing DEP regulations are gonna play with the EPA regulations if they're passed successfully, um, we think that that early state action from an advocate's perspective has been absolutely essential um, to, to moving with as much urgency as this problem really deserves. Um, so we'll be, we'll be looking at the three-year re three review um, and in addition to being curious about how um, DEP um, works with EPA's proposed regulations, um, we will always um, continue to advocate for transparency um, and uh, over-communication rather than under-communication with impacted populations, especially in environmental justice communities. Um, and I'm not going to go into the um, act to protect um, Massachusetts from public health from PFAS because that's been explained really eloquently by my, my fellow panelists. Um, I did want to say there are a couple of other pieces of legislation, um, an act for toxic free kids, um, which requires a number of harmful substances, including PFAS, um, to be identified and eventually eliminated, um, specifically in industries that create um, products catered to children. So kids clothes, toys, art supplies, personal care products. Um, it would ban PFAS in children's products um, and it would also establish a framework for assessing and banning additional chemicals um, every three years. And there is also um, a piece of pending legislation that would require um, DEP to test biosolids for PFAS and make those test results available to potential users, um, including landowners and compost and fertilizer companies. Um, and it would require biosolids that are sold on the retail market to have a warning label. Um, and it would also require um, new standards, um, setting a maximum amount of PFAS that's allowed in retail products. Um, and it does also um, establish a fund that would compensate farmers for losses um, incurred due to the discovery of PFAS. So the bottom line is that um, this growing awareness and this growing action should lead to growing accountability. Um, specifically for um, industries that have known for a better part of 50 years that chemicals like PFOA and PFOS um, have been harmful and who um, continue to manufacture chemicals with similar, um, similar chemical structures, um, you know, without regard to really doing their due diligence to making sure these chemicals were safe before they entered the market. Um, and one thing I didn't mention that I should have is um, we really commend EPA's move um, around TOSCA to um, start um, 
requiring stricter regulations for for PFAS chemicals that have been inactive for several years. Uh, We also strongly believe that TSCA can be used more effectively to um, require rigorous testing prior to a new PFAS chemical entering the market and hopefully banning those chemicals since we need to be moving away from PFAS completely. Um, Thank you for your time and, and excited to get into the question part of the panel. Thank you so much, Mario. That was a great presentation, really tied together, tied into the uh, prior presentation as well. Um, oh my, it's already 329. All right, I'm right there at the end. Um, I don't want to hold anyone if you got other meetings or anything. Um, so feel sign off if you need to. I have a couple of questions or one question at least I'd like to ask folks. Um, I don't see anything in the Q&A right now. Maybe take one if anyone throws one in there. But one one question I would like to try to tie it all up. Um, it, it's a complicated problem that we're dealing with with PFAS. There's there's so many moving parts, so many technical issues, policy questions, um, legal issues we've t- we've touched on today. So if if you could make if you could solve one of those issues a technical issue a policy issue say in a, in the next year um what would it be and why um so anyone want to jump on that first i'll go back to my permanent destruction technology if we could do that in the next year i think we would um we would have an answer to a lot of this you know um we're certainly you know the source control piece is important but we've already got it and we have to deal with it. And is that on the table? Or are there? There, there are. There's research out there. Maybe Kathy and Ken are aware of more um, efforts on that part. I'll just offer. I have to leave. Um, yep. In a minute, but I would offer wish list in one year because I'm not sure it would be accomplished. Would be to remove the 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 source of PFAS from the from the pipeline and get it out of consumer products. It's not an area where MassDEP has authority, but I think that that would really help us a lot. Okay, thanks, Kathy. I, I have a smaller wish. Um, it would be great, So, but let's say we don't have a technology that can get rid of it and we'd still have to deal with all this legacy stuff. We've got to figure out what to do with the sludge, with, with biosolids from wastewater treatment plants. I would go back to Tosca. Um, in the advocate community, we have a phrase that people should be presumed innocent until proven guilty, but that is not how we should be treating chemicals. So um, the better we can get as a country at you know really analyzing chemicals before they enter into the environment, um, the less we have to do this again and again. I think that's a really astute point. Um, that Congress reformed Tosca a few years ago, updated it for the first time in a couple of decades, but still. There's a lot more effort that could be placed in implementing that statute. And then um, yeah, biosolids, it's just so complicated where you you take it out of one, you take it out of the water or the air and put it into a, I think you've dealt with it because you put it into soil, but no, you've got to put the soil somewhere. So, um, so complicated. But um, I think this discussion has really illuminated uh, a lot of the issues today. Um, I really want to thank everybody um, for attending out there in, in cyberspace um, and all these this terrific panel for joining us today. Um, hope everyone will follow up uh, with the panelists if you have specific questions later. Um, but 
again, just thank you to everybody. Thanks to Peter for jumping on at the beginning. Thanks to BBA for hosting us today. Um, appreciate you all being here and have a great rest of your afternoon. Thank you. Thank you.